good morning. Good to see you and good morning to you online that are joining us. We're glad for your presence here this morning. We are back in our series in the book of Daniel. We're in chapter 4 this morning. So if you want to take a copy of God's Word and find your place there, Daniel chapter 4. A minister, a boy scout, and a computer expert were the only passengers on a small plane. The pilot came back to the cabin and said that the plane was going down, but there were only three parachutes and four people. The pilot added, I should have one of the parachutes because I have a wife and three small children. So he took one and jumped. The computer whiz said, well, I should have one of the parachutes too because I am the smartest man in the world and everyone needs me. So he took one and jumped. This left the minister and the Boy Scout, and the minister turned to the Boy Scout and with a sad smile said, Well, son, you're young. I have lived a rich life. So you take the remaining parachute, and I will go down with the plane. The Boy Scout said, Relax, Pastor. The smartest man in the world just grabbed my knapsack and jumped out of the plane. Well, sometimes that happens, doesn't it? One man wrote that a life that is wrapped up in itself makes a very small package. Another said pride is like a beard. It just keeps growing. The solution? Shave it every day. Another said most Christians are like the woodpecker who was pecking on the trunk of a dead tree. Suddenly, lightning struck the tree and splintered it. The woodpecker flew away unharmed. Looking back to where the dead tree had stood, the proud bird exclaimed, Look what I did. In the article titled The Art of Being a Big Shot, it was written by a prominent Christian businessman named Howard Butt. Among many other insightful things he said were these words. Listen to what he wrote. It is my pride that makes me independent of God. It is appealing to me to feel that I am the master of my fate that I run my own life, call my own shots, and go it alone. But that feeling is my basic dishonesty. I can't go it alone. I have to get help from other people. I can't ultimately rely on myself. I am dependent and limited. So living independent of God is really a self-delusion. It is not just a matter of pride being an unfortunate little trait and humility being an attractive little virtue, it's my inner psychological integrity that's actually at stake. When I am conceited, I am lying to myself about what I am. I am pretending to be God and not a man. My pride is the idolatrous worship of myself, and that is the national religion of hell. Pride is a very dangerous and destructive, whatever you want to call it, I'll call it a sin, that sneaks up in the human life and eats us alive. Daniel chapter 4 this morning tells the story of a rich king. We looked earlier in Daniels 1 through 3 at a man named Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 4 we come to another man named Nebuchadnezzar. But we know from history that these are not the same people. And that is why Daniel 
is referred to along with the astrologers and the magicians to interpret yet another dream. If you remember in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar saw a great image. It was a horrifying image of a statue, which basically was the story of world history unfolding. But in Daniel chapter 4, a different Nebuchadnezzar came to the scene. He was a man related to this man, but also not the same. And as a matter of fact, if you search the history and you read some good commentaries, you'll find out there were actually two Nebuchadnezzars in Daniel chapter 4. The one we're going to read about was the one who built a new, I would like to call it luxury, vacation home for himself. While he had another Nebuchadnezzar running the affairs of Babylon. So this Nebuchadnezzar is going to have to learn the same lesson that the Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 had to learn but under a different imagery. So a thought to get our minds geared this morning is Matthew chapter 23, verse 12, the words of our Lord. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. What is it that we learn? Jeremiah tells us, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. (laughs) That's quite a life verse, isn't it? That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight declares the Lord. Boasting, boasting, boasting. The pride comes before a fall. Now we're going to look at Daniel 4 at some verses here, and it's quite long, I know, it's 37 verses, but I won't say one thing that's better than this. So I'm just going to read God's Word to you. Here is an outline that someone suggested. I thought it was a great outline, so I'm going to throw it up there for you. You're going to see five basic things in this passage. Nebuchadnezzar's agitation, he's, he's just aggravated something happened. His, the interpretation of his dream, what he is exhorted to do, how he is humiliated from his pride, and then ultimately his restoration. So let's look at verses 4 through 18 at the agitation this king went through. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid as I lay in bed. The fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Verse 7, Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last Daniel came in before me, he whose name was Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. 
Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. And the birds of the heavens lived in its branches. And all the flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed. And behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip its leaves, scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze. And the tender grass of the field, let him be with the wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let it a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by a word from the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whoever he wills and sets it over the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Now, in this first section, Nebuchadnezzar unveils his dream, and his dream was basically a, a huge tree, a tree that bore fruit that stood out in the middle of the field and the birds of the air and the beasts of the field and everything came to this wonderful, beautiful tree. And all of a sudden he heard a command from heaven, chop it down, chop it down, but leave the stump. And this troubled him because he felt like the dream was intended directly for him. And in fact, as we see in the next section, it was. <clears throat> now look down and I'm going to Skip on down so I don't have to read his entire dream over. But Daniel basically repeats the dream and now is going to give him its interpretation. So if you look down in verse 24, we're going to start there. Verse 24, this is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whoever he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules so, Nebuchadnezzar, <clears throat> what's going to happen is you're going to be swelled up in pride and you're going to be brought down until you realize you are not the king of the earth. God is. Now, <clears throat> I've, in, I've basically given you the theme of pride this morning for Daniel chapter 4. But probably the better underlying theme is that heaven rules earth. And I just share this with you as a believer this morning because sometimes believers get all worked up over who's on the throne or who's in this house or who's in that house. But let me remind you that it doesn't matter who is in what throne or what house. Almighty God is in heaven and he rules over all. 
and all men and all women and every leader and every person, hear me carefully, is only one decision away from being put out in a field like a madman. Now, I've heard people make fun of this before, and if you read anything on Daniel chapter 4, people will say, well, there's no way that a person could lose their mind and become like an animal and allow their hair to grow long and toenails grow long and fingernails like bird's claws. Oh, really? Well, apparently, you have never been to psych wards like I have. And apparently, you have never met people who have lost what we would say is their mind. Because let me assure you, you give a human seven years, they will grow very long claws, very long hair, and if you leave them without a mind, it can be a very disastrous thing. I have seen it with my own eyes. That is, a person who has lost the ability to reason. And that is exactly what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. God Almighty took away his ability to reason. He lost his sanity and he became insane. Apparently, they didn't know what to do with him since he was a king and he was royalty. He was apparently in a protected place and he was allowed to go out and roam and lost his mind while another Nebuchadnezzar was running the affairs of Babylon. You should read the Babylonian Chronicles and you can actually see that there was a seven-year period of time where this Nebuchadnezzar is not even mentioned. It's fascinating. The uh, people who were skeptical of Scripture and used to make fun of the Bible and used to make fun of Daniel uh, used to say that, you know, those Christians believe this book that's not historically accurate and so forth. Well, guess what? Since they found that and they found the proof that there was this Nebuchadnezzar who has disappeared for seven years, you don't ever hear that argument ever come up again from Bible skeptics. You know why? Because it's historically accurate. The man lost his mind. But before he does, he's exhorted, as normally we are before we're judged, aren't we, to do what God wants him to do. Notice what Daniel tells him in verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So king, basically what he's saying is, repent of your arrogance and change your ways and you won't be humbled. Well, what does Nebuchadnezzar do? As all men do in most instances, he swells himself up with great pride. And as my old preacher used to say, he walked out on the porch one day and stuck his fingers in under his suspenders and bowed them out and perched his belly out with his big cup of coffee. And he looked out at his new palace and his new house. And this is what he said. Look at what I have done. Look at my palace and my Babylon and my great kingdom. Look what I have done. This is interesting, folks. Look in verse 28. All this came upon Nebuchadnezzar at the end of the 12 months. 12 months. He was walking on the roof of the palace in Babylon, the royal palace. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power? As a royal residence, this was his vacation home. 
and for the glory of my majesty. This is so like God. Does this make chills shoot up your back? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and it shall be dri- you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you will be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. The boastful words of his mouth. You know, what does the word of God say about pride? Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for you know not what a day may bring forth. Nebuchadnezzar in his great ease began to boast of his life. It kind of reminds you of the rich farmer over in Luke's gospel who looked around at all of the things that he had and said, look at all this great stuff that I have. What, what shall I do? You know, I could give it away to the poor. I could give it to someone who needs it. But, you know, I think I'll just tear my barn down and build a bigger one and just enjoy all this wealth for myself. And guess what happened? God said, fool, tonight your soul is required of you. Now what shall the man give for his soul? A bigger barn? A bigger 401k? A a bigger job? What, What shall a man give for his soul? And then, of course, the famous saying, for what shall it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lost his own soul. Nebuchadnezzar missed the point. He missed the warning. He missed the humility. So what did he do? He boasted. And what happened because of his boast? He was humbled. Now what happens? We read in verses 28 through 33 that he became like this beast with hair and claws. And then if you look in verse 34, he finally comes back to himself. Verse 34, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. By the way, just a side note here. Most commentators that you read, some, a majority that I read, believe that this Nebuchadnezzar here actually converted and trusted the Hebrew God. Now, I don't know that. I can't affirm that. But from what he says, he has some pretty good theology. Look what he says. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his own will. Among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Now, by the way, we should underline that in our heart. 
Did you hear me? Don't worry about your neighbor. Don't worry about the politicians. Don't worry about the board of supervisors. Don't worry about all them. Just hear this verse again. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. The strongest person you know in your life right now, Almighty God is able to humble them. And if you don't believe me, just watch. I remember at one time the strongest man that I ever knew in my life was brought down, I mean flat on his face and to his knees, over a rock a little bit bigger than a BB. You want to know why? Because that little BB was lodged in his kidney. And it brought him all the way to his knees. Now, if you've never had a kidney stone, perhaps you've never experienced that. I had one. And I'm not talking about me. When I was a boy, I saw my father, who was the strongest man I knew, because I was just a little old fella, big old Marine, go all the way to the knees over a kidney stone. And you know what? I've seen some mighty, mighty men fall. One time I was in police work, and I can remember my dad told me from the time I was a kid, never ever let the physical appearance of anyone intimidate you. And dad said he learned this from the Marine Corps. He said the bigger they are and the hairier they are and the more tattoos they have on them, dad said the, the, usually now, the weaker they are. He was talking about when they were lined up in the Marine Corps line all the way down and the drill sergeant came down. This was back in the days when the military could be the military. And the DI would go down and pick the biggest, hairiest one out and he'd grab him right by the hair of the head and drag him right out in the floor and just work him over. Now, some people would say, oh my gracious, that's awful that that happens in the military. That's the military. And those drill instructors were trying to prove a point and here was the point. They ran that show. Not the biggest, hairiest, meanest looking guy down there. But Dad said the most in incredible thing when they were all lined up and everything they had stripped off and the barber came down and shaved the hair off every one of them. Dad said, boy, it was amazing to know what a big old rough, hairy, tattooed guy looked like when he was bald and naked. He said he wasn't quite the most impressive down the line. But he told the story of this one guy who was the big fighter, and he wanted to fight. And he was out there apparently trying to ag people on, and some little skinny guy came out of the crowd from nowhere and punched him right in the nose and floored him and knocked him completely out. And Dad said those couple of little combinations there just taught him a lesson that the, sometimes the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Nebuchadnezzar thought he had grown so big <clears throat> and so powerful that not even God himself could touch him. Have you ever seen anyone like that? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been that pride, prideful and arrogant? One man wrote a little article on pride, and listen to what he said. He said, what is pride? Lots of times people don't understand it. He said, well, pride is not having self-esteem. The Bible teaches us to have self-esteem because we're to love others as we love ourselves. And if we don't love ourselves, you can't love other people. Pride is not doing a job well. You ought to do your job well. And if you sweep a room, you ought to sweep the corners. 
That is not what the Bible condemns, being prideful of your work. What the Bible condemns is a spirit of independence from God. That is what pride is, a spirit of independence from God, and therefore a spirit of ungratefulness to God, and therefore, along with that, the feeling that somehow, some way, we are better than other people because we may have gifts, abilities, opportunities, or riches that others may not have. In other words, it's an elevated view of yourself looking down your nose at somebody else. Now let me assure you that that is not hard to do. And one man said, when you're looking down your nose at others, you can't see what's above you. How true that is. One of the reasons that people hate the church is because of the pride of Christians. Did you know that sometimes Christians are the most proud, arrogant people that there are? The problem is we can't even see it in ourselves. And people hate that. I read the story this week of Muhammad Ali. You know, Muhammad Ali, the famous boxer, his name was not always Muhammad Ali. His name was Cassius Clay. He grew up a, a poor boy, married a woman who was obviously uh, converted to Islam. But at the age that his wife got into an argument with him, she told him he was so arrogant and so proud, she challenged him to write something. This is what actually turned his life around. She challenged him to write an essay about his life. And when Clay begins to tell the story, what basically happened was when he was a man, he walked down and he found a cartoon. Can you believe this? He found a cartoon of a white Christian beating a slave and telling them to believe on Jesus. And from that cartoon, Cassius Clay decided he wanted nothing to do with Christianity. And he changed his name to Muhammad Ali after he converted to Islam. Now you can read the rest of his life and his story. Vicious boxer. Vicious boxer. And ended up dying rejecting Christ as Savior. Wonderful philanthropist, did lots of good for men, made millions and millions of dollars, gave lots of it away. But all of the things that he did did not get him into heaven because he rejected the only way in. He basically told the story that when he was 12 years old, his parents took him to a religious church and they had him baptized at 12. And this is what he said, that wasn't my Christianity and that wasn't my name. I wanted nothing to do with that Christianity. Sometimes we don't understand how our pride impacts other people, do we? Have you ever lived with someone or worked with someone who was so proud, so arrogant, so filled with themselves that they could never say I was wrong? You want to know how, how you are around someone who is filled with pride? They are never able to admit, I was wrong. I am sorry. Please forgive me for doing that. I will not do that again. If I do, you have the right to tell me I did that, but I am so sorry. I totally was wrong. You know, if you live with someone like that, you understand the impacts of pride. Well, God humbled Nebuchadnezzar. So, what are some things that we learn from pride? 
Well, let me just share three with you this morning. First of all, pride is intrinsically found. What and you say intrinsically? What does intrinsic mean? It means it's within. Pride is found from within. It's not something that the flesh produces. My hands, my eyes. It comes from a spiritual part of my body. Listen to what Jesus said in Mark chapter 7. For from within, that is, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, and read it with me, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within, and they defile a person. <clears throat> Let me suggest something to you this morning that pride, immorality, evil thoughts, all these things that well up inside of us, this is a spiritual battle that takes place in our heart. And I want you to hear me this morning, whether you're here or on camera or whatever. We are intrinsically infected with pride. I read an article this week. It was 16 pages of information that was so packed full of information from the secular world, from the theological world, and it was integrated together. And I'm going to give you the bottom line. We are so filled with pride, we don't even know we're filled with pride, and that's when we have the most pride. Every one of us, every, every person, pride manifests itself in humility. Pride manifests itself in not being able to take a compliment. I mean, pride manifests itself in so many different ways. Just let me level the field with you here. Every one of us are eat alive with it. So the whole point of this is to help us see what to do when we recognize pride. First of all, know this, it's intrinsic, it's from within. You know, I shared the illustration this morning that, you know, there's this big debate over what is sometimes called inherited sin and imputed sin. And just let me share this. Believe both of them, even if you don't know what they mean. Basically, how does sin pass from Adam and Eve and their fall in the garden to you and I today and to our children? And the answer is what? Both. It's inherited from Adam and it's charged against us with God. So how do you know that a little baby is filled with pride and jealousy and envy? Well, just have one and you'll know. But it was amazing because we could take any of our children and put them in a room and give them 25 toys all the way around them and let one other child come in the room and let one of those toys be grabbed by that other child. That's all it takes, just one. And that child would, would wade through toys and things to go straight to that other one and grab it and pull it away. Mine! You know, and as a parent, you sit there and see that and go, you selfish little rascal. You can't even talk yet. You can't even put two words together. You can barely even crawl. And yet you can see when somebody else takes something and 
you think is yours and you yank it away. Now, listen, folks. Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. But the rod of correction will drive it far from them. That's not my word. That's God's word. Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. And so we have to teach them from the very earliest age when we instill character in them that that is sin. And you know, before we get too high and mighty and think about our kids, you always ask the question, where did that come from? And then if you're a good husband, you always blame it on your wife. But unfortunately, that doesn't hold water theologically, does it? You know, when Eve sinned in the garden, are you listening closely? When Eve sinned in the garden and ate the fruit, their eyes were not opened. As a matter of fact, she ate first. The New Testament tells us that she was truly deceived. She believed him. She thought he was an agent for God. That is the devil, the one who pride originated in. The one who allowed this intrinsic pride to come in us. She knew. She, she thought he was the one that was telling her the truth. And she was deceived. And he knew exactly what he was doing. Adam was not deceived. And Paul tells us this very clearly. The man was not deceived. He disobeyed God willingly. And when Adam partook of the fruit, immediately their eyes were open and they knew they were naked. And Paul says in Romans chapter 5, Through one man's disobedient sin entered the world and death through sin. Now let me answer this question. Why does God hate pride so bad? I found this out this week. You know, it's amazing what you learn when you continue to study. I'd never heard this before. But the enemy of God who was in the garden, who was tempting Adam and Eve to rebel against God because he was jealous of them and he hated mankind because they were given dominion to rule the earth and he wanted it. He appealed to the pride of Adam and Eve that God was not good and they bought the lie. And you know, God tells the young pastor in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he tells the church, he warns them, do not select a novice, a young man, to become a pastor with no... Don't select him. Why? Lest he be lifted up in pride and fall into the judgment of the devil. How did the devil fall? He elevated himself... He was unteachable. He was un this and un that. And he deceived the man and he was demoted. Why does God hate pride? Because Satan, the arch enemy of humanity, tricked man by thinking that pride was going to make him like God. And Adam knew it. He knew he was going to disobey God. And the moment he did, boom. And guess what? Every one of us are infected with it. It's intrinsically found. Notice the second thing about pride. It is intentionally activated. I mean, 
I have a whole list of things that talks about pride. I'm not dare going to sit here and read it to you this morning, but it is so scary, so scary about what is down inside our human spirits. Did you know that? And, and we intentionally activate it. It's interesting that Nebuchadnezzar had a 12-month warning. Nebuchadnezzar, humble yourself. He was able to do it for 12 full months, and he couldn't stand it anymore. You know, what, what did he finally do? He had to walk out on that balcony, and he finally had to stick his fingers in some spinner. Look at what I have built. Look at what I have built. And immediately, boom, Almighty God judged him. So what does that tell us about number three? What's the third thing? Pride is immediately detested and eventually judged. Now you can mark this one down. All the arrogance, all the boasting, all the pride of life, immediately when it's in the human heart, Almighty God detests it. What does that mean? He hates it. He detests pride in the human life. And it is eventually judged. Now, thankfully, aren't you glad of this, that God doesn't immediately judge us when we boast of our arrogance? You know, last night, did you all watch the Liberty game? No, because you don't care, right? Well, I did because I'm an alumnus and I was watching the Liberty game. I've never seen anything like it in my life. They had the game won right down on the, the goal line with the ball and we're going to try to run the timeout and kick a field goal. And the man stands at the one-yard line and instead of kneeling, what happens? They reach and grab him and jerk the ball out of his hands. And the other team gets possession and it has to go into overtime. Oh, I was so angry. Oh, I was angry. And I, I wanted to, to go fuss and go off about this. And, and then I began to realize... And sometimes it's hard to remember. These college kids are 19 years old. They are my children's age. And so I have to calm myself because I think, you know, sometimes they, they are not NFL players. Sometimes we make And boy, I was just so irritated. Boy, Liberty came back and won the game, thank God. But here's what I did. I, I went to bed and I laid down and I thought to myself, you know, I'm glad we won, but I'm glad nobody else saw me. Because the other team played just as hard or harder than they did. But, wow, it just comes from everywhere, doesn't it? Pride is all in us. Daniel chapter 4, While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. How can you read those words and then go out and boast? You know, there's a story in Acts, I think it's chapter 12, where Herod Agrippa walked out and he put on this big shiny vest because, you know, he wanted to glaze and so he wore this big glittery vest and he walked out and he strutted in front of all the people and they all bowed and said, you know, great is the God, Herod. You know what the New Testament says? Immediately that man to be began to be sickened, and he was eaten from within with worms. And if you've ever watched a, a re-evaluation of what happened to him from historians, you can read Josephus on this, this man was literally ate alive with worms. 
God Almighty hates pride and He is able to judge it and He will judge it and eventually every uh, form of judgment for pride will be accomplished and carried out. So we have to be very careful with pride, don't we? So what are we to do with this terrible thing of pride? Well, if I can advance my slide, I will. Josh, can you advance it for me? There it is. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5. Probably a familiar passage with you. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God pushes away and resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So what is the answer when we see pride crop up in our life? either through false humility, you know, we, we act like we're humble, but really we want people to praise us. You ever seen people like that? Or when people come and they say, oh, you're so beautiful, you're so beautiful, you take such good care of yourself, you're so beautiful. And we say, oh, thank you, I know I'm so beautiful, but I'm really not that beautiful. But inside we're going, oh, I know I'm so beautiful. You know, why do you look like you do? L listen to this closely. Why do you look like you do? Why are you the same height you are? And you, know, you are that way because Almighty God made you that way. And the only person that we can give credit for our beauty to is the one who created us. You say, well, uh, I can put more meat on the frame or take it off. That's true. That's true. You can lose weight. You can do. But I'm saying overall in our beauty and our appearance, it didn't come from ourselves because you didn't put an order in for what you were going to look like. And neither did your mother or father. You come out exactly like God wanted you to come out. Just the right height, just the right stature, your face, your body, your makeup. Almighty God made you just like you are. And you know, sometimes we can be proud in our appearance or, or be proud in our wealth. You ever seen anybody proud in their wealth? You know, I don't know if you've ever read the stories back in the depression when the stock market collapsed i grew up in mcdowell county in a place near keystone west virginia which was one of the highest interest paying places in the in the whole united states keystone mcdowell county people during the depression when they lost all of their money and their wealth jumped out of buildings ended their life because they found out that they could not live their life without the pompous things that wealth would bring them. Life just could never be enjoyed unless it was filled with prosperity. They just couldn't appreciate it. You know why? Listen to me. P-R-I-D-E. Pride. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Don't, don't try it yourself. Don't try to be exalted. Let God exalt you. I told you the story about the turtle on the fence post. He didn't get there on his own. Somebody set him there. He can't climb a post, but somebody put him there. The same thing's true in our life. Humble yourselves that at the proper time, God may exalt us. Casting all of our anxieties on him, because he cares for you. 
Be sober-minded and be watchful. Listen closely, because your adversary, just like he did in the Garden of Eden, just like he did in the Garden of Eden, your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion. Listen to me interpretively read here. Seeking someone to devour, to devour through problems and pride. Suffering and pride, the two things that the enemy uses to destroy a life. Now let me ask you a question. Is this terrible? Nebuchadnezzar, the great king, was humbled seven years of insanity, brought to his knees, and then turned to God. Are bad things, quote-unquote, always bad? I want to read you a little story. There was a young pastor who was fresh out of seminary, and he went to visit a dying man in Washington, D.C. This man was in the hospital, and the young pastor had never met him before. He had this vicious bone cancer that was quickly and painfully eating away the life of this man. And the man was not a Christian. The pastor shared the gospel message several times, but there was no spiritual response from the man in the hospital. Nevertheless, a friendship developed between the two, and through a number of visits, the pastor learned that the patient was a remarkable, self-made man. In fact, he had been raised in Spain, and his father was killed by the Franco regime. And because of Spain's official church su supported Franco, this young man turned his back on God and religion completely. He fled his country as a teenager and came to America knowing no English. He worked and studied hard. He eventually went to college and studied psychiatry, using it to confirm his unbelief. Despite his early disadvantages in life, he became a very wealthy and very successful man. In fact, he became chairman of the psychiatry department of one of the nation's most prestigious hospitals. Then came the cancer. In just a few months, the malignancy in this man's body destroyed his accomplishments of a lifetime. It devastated the man's body, which was once kept in top shape by miles of daily swimming and rigorous training. Even his mind began to deteriorate because of the advances of this horrible bone disease. Finally, with his spirit broken and his body racked with pain, the man ran out of pride and became tired of his own answers, which really weren't answers at all. When the pastor visited the next time, the despairing psychiatrist confronted him. Quote, I have treated depression all my life, but I have no answers for what I'm going through. If your God has some answers, please help me with the hell that I'm experiencing now. Give me some peace if you can. The young pastor contemplated what to say and then answered, quote, You have gained everything that a man could gain in every avenue of life. You have wealth, respect, intelligence, 
and achievement. These may all have to be put aside before you gain this thing that you want. You have succeeded in every sphere of life except the spiritual. And to succeed in this realm, you must not follow any of the rules that you have ever used in your life before. You cannot conquer the spiritual world by your own efforts in any way. You must first admit your helplessness and your inability, confessing that you have nothing to stand on. In order for you to enter God's kingdom and to know His peace, you must not come as a self-sufficient man, but as a helpless child. The man stared at him, but remained silent. The pastor, not knowing what to do, folded his hands and prayed with him, and soon left and walked out the door. A few days later, the cancer had progressed to the extent that the man's leg broke spontaneously as the physicians moved him from one bed to the next. The doctors decided to do an immediate operation on him, even though he was in such weakened condition. On the eve of his operation, unbeknownst to his family, the patient wrote the pastor a letter. It began with the Apostles' Creed, written in Spanish. Then the note continued in English with these words, quote, Jesus, I hate my sins. I have not served or worshipped you. Father, I know the only way to come into your kingdom is by the precious blood of Jesus. I know you stand at the door and will answer those who knock. I now want to be your lamb, me with you. The psychiatrist who wrote those words never regained consciousness after his operation. He learned Nebuchadnezzar's great lesson that those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. The sovereign God chose to break him of his pride with a vicious case of bone cancer. It was the worst thing that ever happened in this man's life, but in reality, it was the best thing that ever happened in this man's life. And because of this bone cancer and because of his humbling of his pride, he looked up to heaven and he is in heaven now where Jesus is saying, I am with you forever. So the greatest tragedy in life can be the greatest blessing for eternity. May we never get to the place in our life where God has to humble us under His mighty hand, but may we all be thankful for the times that He has and when good has come out of it. Maybe you're here this morning or maybe you're watching us through video and you don't even realize this, but your heart is so filled with pride that God has been resisting you He has been pushing you away. And the blessings that God wants to give us, He can't give us 
because we're sitting there looking down our noses at other people. When in reality, what we need to be doing is looking at our own heart and up toward Almighty God and seeing our great need for Him. And our pride has become a great offense to Almighty God. You know, that sin has to be paid for. And the only way the Bible says it can be paid for is through the death and the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ for the full payment for our sin. And what you and I have to do is realize that we come just like this psychiatrist. In the spiritual realm, there is not one thing you can do to earn your place before God. You can't tell God who your mom and dad was. You can't tell God what kind of church you went to. You can't tell God how much you read your Bible or how much you prayed or how religious you were or what great gifts you gave to people. You have to throw it all away because you can't do one thing to earn the forgiveness of Almighty God. A priest can't give it to you. A preacher can't pray it and make it real in your life. The only thing you can do is come as a helpless child to the Father and say, Oh, Father, I have sinned against you. And my sin has separated me from you. But Thank you, Lord, that you have given Christ to die in my place to pay for my sin debt. And I believe that. I accept that into my life. Oh, God. And I thank you for his death on my part. I receive him as my Savior. When you do that, based upon the word of God, God gives you the authority to become a child of God, even to those who believe on his name. Will you do that today? Father, bless your word. Thank you for the price that was paid for our pride. And, oh, God, we thank you for the Savior this morning and what he did for us on the cross. May we be eternally grateful. And for anyone who has not trusted him as Savior, may they bow their head, Father, right now, and may the Holy Spirit impress upon their heart the need they have to believe in Jesus as Savior. We will thank you for it as we look forward to sharing eternity together because of what our great Savior has done for us. For it's in the matchless, wonderful, mighty, gracious name of Jesus we pray. Amen.